welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I show I have Fraser Lang, Senior Vice President for GBL. GBL is a well-known Canadian actuarial company that helps businesses implement different solutions that help with people's retirement. In particular, I brought Fraser in to talk about individual pension plans or IPPs and retirement compensation agreements or RCAs and how they can help people plan for retirement. With that, here's my interview with Fraser. Hello, Fraser. Hey, Jason. How you doing? Good. Thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. No problem. Anytime. So, uh, Fraser Lang of GBL, tell us about GBL. Sure. GBL was uh, founded in 1995 by Gordon Lang, uh, who is one of the principal experts in terms of pension plans within our country. We have over 1,500 IPPs currently under management, about 500 RCAs that are currently under mm-hmm. management. But we've set up roughly about 3,000 IPPs over the life of, mm-hmm. of the company. We're a little different from other actuarial firms in the fact that we have financial planning specialists that are there every step of the way to navigate through clients' business needs, their tax planning needs, and how that all fits within the structures that we establish for clients. We bill the client directly for the work we do, and we don't participate in any investment uh, commissions or that are derived from an, mm-hmm. anything that is placed within the plans. So, and effectively, I mean, I've used you guys for years. What you do is you administer, you set these things up and administer them at what I would call a very reasonable price and and take the burden, which let's face it, there's a very large filing burden on some of these strategies, right? You guys have streamlined that and you made it very easy for the client and for the advisor to work in collaboration with you. Yeah. I think that that's one of the areas that people have a bit of a fear of IPPs, especially on the advisory side. Is this going to be a lot more work? Is this administratively cumbersome? some as much as we can take the complexity out of it that's what we do and mm. what we've done as a firm is in terms of fees we're sort of middle of the road but we've reinvested on our service offerings so mm. when you're looking at actuaries it's not the same as shopping for produce where one price uh, no when the thing it's is not the same. service and offerings are very different i've seen that in the past as well where somebody may have found someone who's a hundred dollars a year cheaper and, <laughs> and in the end they came uh back to us within a year or two just because they were unsatisfied with the service. So we'll circle back to pricing, but let's again, the target here is we're talking to business owners. So we've been using acronyms, we're gonna get away from that. So we're gonna start off with the IPP or individual pension plan. So tell us, uh, Cole's notes, roughly, what is an individual pension plan? Sure, an individual pension plan is a self-directed defined benefit pension plan, which might sound like a mouthful, but oh, it totally is. <laughs> but, but essentially, what, you know, for 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 those that are unfamiliar with defined benefit def- versus defined contribution, defined contribution is eighteen percent of your earnings up to one hundred fifty-two thousand. It's basically like an RSP, but it's it's wrapped up in a pension. Exactly. The difference here with a defined benefit is similar to what government workers and teachers have, where. As you get older than age 38, the percentage of earnings that we use, or what I call the delta that we use to calculate room grows. So if you had a 40-year-old versus a 60-year-old with the same income in the same year, the 60-year-old's gonna have a substantially higher contribution than that of the 40-year-old because they have a shorter period of time to fund for retirement. Okay, so let's unpack that. So, I mean, we look at someone using a defined contribution plan, it's an, just like an RSP, money goes in, you're limited based on your RSP limit. Whereas this one, there's a formula, anyone who's ever seen one of these pension plans, this is a formula, number of years times a certain percentage of your income times, um, what am I missing, times your salary or average salary. 
And the contributions that can go into these are substantially can be substantially larger over time than a traditional RSP, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So basically, you know, let's talk about why is that? Why is it that there is a difference between traditional pension plans, defined benefit pension plans, and RSPs and, and defined contribution plans? Well, because a defined contribution plan is basically you have your contributions based on your earnings. At the end of the day, when you retire, you take a percentage of those assets, which is your payout uh, that normally occurs. When you run out of assets, you run out of assets. Then. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a defined benefit pension plan, what happens is there is the assumption there that, uh, and we're using a 2% benefit formula, so it's 2% mm -hmm. of one's earnings each What's the year. most you can do unless you're government you know, unless you're, unless you're, unless you're an MP or a judge, apparently. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're limited in terms of that being the, the most robust pension calculation or benefit calculation we can provide. So we add up all those years together. And in order to be able to guarantee a, a pension payout through a normal mortality or normal, uh, let's say age 85, you would need a larger pool of money to take care of that than you would with a defined contribution. Because with a defined contribution, there is no promise to pay out a specific dollar yeah. amount. Everybody's familiar with that with the RSP. It's whatever comes out of it. So, you know, for example, someone earns 150000 on average, 2% of that. They worked the company for 40 years. That's 80% of the one fifty. So now we're looking at, what is that? It's um, <laughs> 120000 that this plan is supposed to generate an income for the beneficiary, uh, for the plan member for the rest of their lives. Correct? Exactly. And on top of that, it is a pension that is indexed to inflation. So we do see the pension going up from one year to the next yeah. as well. So it's not just a flat line payout. Yeah. It's going to go up each year. But unlike a traditional defined benefit pension where you make contributions into it and then kind of it's like pay attention, to the, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. The money is being run for you by a pension authority. The pension provider here in this case, which is typically a business owner doing it for themselves, and we'll get into who else can do that shortly, is basically able to self-direct those assets, right? So their advisor can weigh in and guide them. They can self-manage those, but essentially they're responsible for the return, right? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, if you're going to follow the defined benefit to the, the true letter of what it is. So if you're saying, I want to have a, that specific defined benefit uh -huh. in retirement, there is an assumed seven and a half percent rate of return that the government established back in 1990. If your plan at a end of a three year rolling period fails to hit seven and a half percent in terms of the asset value, the company would have the opportunity to put in additional funds to backstop the pension. So, so when the pension doesn't perform as the government says it does, you get extra contribution room. Exactly. Which you do not get with an RSP. I mean, if you have a bad three-year period and you average two years, 2% 2 per year, you know, your RSP room is the same and unchanged. Whereas with a pension, you not only basically have the normal contribution room you would have had, but now all the money that you didn't earn over those three years, the company can cut a check for that and make that contribution as well. That's correct. And it's deductible to the company as an expense. And, and it is the only type of plan out there for a business owner that has that mechanism that if my investments don't return a certain amount, yeah. I can actually get a tax deduction for making up the difference from my company. Yeah. And that's, I mean, yeah, at the end of the, that's incredibly valuable because especially a lot of the business owners I've spoken to in the past, many of them will turn around and say, I take enough risk in my business, right? I want something more conservative on the investment side, right? And what they want is the security of knowing they're going to be able to retire. If they get to a, their business is lucky enough to get to a certain point, they know they're never got to worry about that. But for many of them, it's still it still very much is. So let's go back to so who can set these things up and and 
you know, what are we looking at in terms of a timeline to get what the process is for setting one up? Sure, no problem. Uh, we're normally looking at what we call connected members, which are people that own 10% or more shares in the company. The reason for that is there's a different set of rules that oversee a owner manager versus an arm's length employee. If you're to set this up for an arm's length employee, the government would require that you have all the funding topped up to exactly where it should be mm -hmm. because you're making a promise to your employee. Mm -hmm. If you're setting it up as a connected member, which is nine. 99.9% of the plans that we establish, yeah. they look at it and say, you're making a promise to yourself as the owner. If you don't fully fund that promise, we're not going to penalize you for it because you know, you're not, yeah. it's not like you're, you're cheating an employee or uh, so. So really we are looking at the owner spouse. If they are receiving T4 from the business, they can be joint on the plan. Mm -hmm. And in the case where we might have a bona fide family business where the kids are definitely going to continue the plan, they're mm -hmm. active in the company, there's no viewpoint on selling or rolling up the company when mom and dad pass yeah. away, we can add them onto the plan when they reach the age where it makes sense mathematically, late yeah. 30s, and uh, they can participate as well. So a couple of things to unpack there. First off, again, typically business owners do this, and we could do this for employees, but I mean, I've talked people out of it before too, because I mean, it doesn't, here's the thing, it's one thing to want to be benevolent to your employees. It's something that else to be on the hook for underperformance in the market to your employees, right? Like I have no problem cutting a check to my pension plan to make up for a couple of bad years. I don't know if I want to, after setting up something that gives them all their pension contributions, also be on the hook for their performance, especially into retire through retirement, right? That that to me is a, a bit of an ask. And to most business owners, when it's explained, it's also a bit of an ask. So let's also talk about the age. So now, basically, you said mid-30s. So prior to that, and I've seen this before, people are just generally better off with an RSP. And can you explain why that is? Well, age 38 is the crossover point on an IPP contribution yeah. versus that of, uh, of an RSP. So I mean, if you're younger than 38, I mean, you have a couple things there. The majority of business owners in their early 30s or 20s, if they were so far ahead of the game that they started their company in their 20s, they often have other needs. I mean, using your RSP, not only you're not paying any carrying costs mm -hmm. that you would to an actuarial firm, but you have the flexibility for things like the home buyer's plan, lifelong mm -hmm. learning plan. Yeah. Uh, spousal RSPs, perhaps if you're if you're going to start a family and, and you might want to split some income with your spouse as well. So I think there's a lot of flexibilities, and I find that most businesses, it's not till they're really getting into their 40s and 50s where they have a lot of excess capital where they need that significant deduction. Yeah, I mean, we've occasionally seen these things are marketed to people younger, but quite frankly, short of being a Zuckerberg and making that kind of money that early in life, we all have other priorities first before we get to, you know, I've already maxed out my RSP, what else is there? Okay, so beyond that, let's talk about a couple other concerns here, or a couple other uh, things that come into play here. What's involved in setting one of these up? There's a couple steps that we have to the process. So we have a one-page fact finder that we have clients complete uh, where they provide us with their past T4. And it's very important that people realize that it is your T4 income from your company. Yeah not dividends. Exactly. We sometimes see people using line 101 off of their tax return. No. <laughs> that, that can, yeah. Yeah. That can capture a lot of other income and, yeah, and that for... income is not going to be accepted by CRA. So we look at their past income, how old they are, a uh, rough idea of what their RSP assets are, because that has some impact on something called past service yeah. and whether they have any unused RSP room. And from there, we come out with an illustration that shows a comparative analysis between an IPP versus that of an RSP, where they would be if they retired at one age versus the other. Mm -hmm. And we normally review that with the client, their advisor, and we strongly encourage their accountant to be at the table so that everybody... Everybody signs off page, simultaneously. Right? Yeah. 
And then from there, we have an application they complete. We drop the legal documents, file them with the government. You're looking at about a month after we file them to get a registration number where you can set up the plan and, and start funding it. And uh, a few months later, depending on uh, how quickly CRA is with processing the application, they will give you an approval where they view all the past T4 to make sure it matches up with what they have on file. And at that point, there is an RSP transfer that would happen from their existing RSPs into the plan. Mm -hmm. And there's something called past service that the company can fund at that point. Okay, so let's talk about this. There's So that's a, that's a lot of work, but in fairness, I mean, to my experience with you guys, I fill out basically two forms on behalf of the client. You guys take care of everything else we just discussed, and a big box comes back for me to sign. So it sounds like a lot, but frankly, to the end client and to the advisor, it really is not. You guys are carrying the ball on this. So in terms of the contributions to start out, so there's three types of contributions we're talking about off the bat, right? So you just discussed one of them. There's the RSP transfer, so part of your RSP has to move into it. There is the basically current pension contributions. So that's the current contribution for the current year you're working. And then there, which over time grows to be, in my experience, significantly more than the RSP room. I think I just took in one client's $48,000 check when the RSP room is what, $25,000? Like I can't remember where it is right now. But the point is, is that substantially more than they could have done otherwise. And then there's the past service. So tell me about that past service piece. Why is it there? And what kind of numbers we typically look at with that? So there's rules in place that if you've had your corporation since 1990, we mm -hmm. can go back and say, had I been in an IPP from the time I incorporated, here is the amount of money over what I could have put into my RSPs. So we look at their income and their age in each year. We say, here's what your IPP contribution would have been. Here's what your RSP contribution would have been. We take the difference of the two. We use that 7.5% rate of return and we yep. accrue that and we come up with a forward number and we say, this is past service. Now with a pension plan, what happens is this is zeroing out all but $600 of your RSP room going forward. There's something called a pension adjustment that we provide. Yeah. That goes so you don't get both, you only get one. Exactly. Yeah. So in order to make the plan whole and to be able to do that RSP, that, that past service contribution, the individual would transfer a certain amount from their RSPs, which is just equal to what their RSP room would have been for all those years, plus that seven and a half percent. It's a tax neutral transfer into the plan and it allows them to buy that additional deduction in past service. Fair enough. So, I mean, to my experience, when I've done this, depending on age, I've seen these past service contributions be you know, as little as 60,000 and as much as into the multiple hundreds of thousands, right? So being able, for someone who thought that they were being diligent and maxing out their RSP every year and doing a good job of that, to turn around and tell them, oh, by the way, not only if we if we set this up, not only do you get fifteen, $20,000 more in room in this given year, but you can also cut a check for 300,000 into the plan. I mean, like that's, you know, that's a tax shelter they never thought they were gonna have access to. Yeah, and the nice thing about that is that 300,000 in your example can be contributed lump sum or can be spread out over time. And yep. they funded by retirement, that's fine. There's no set yeah. schedule they I, need to But in it. fairness, you know, when we're looking at a market for this, we're not looking at a business owner who doesn't have substantial cash flows, right? We're looking for businesses that, you know, you're leaving money behind in, in the corporation. You know, you have a corporate surplus and you have good income that you can deduct against. And frankly, I mean, if, if you're in a highly volatile industry, I don't know that the IPP is, is made for you, quite honestly, right? Because these are, these are required contributions, right? Definitely. I mean, in majority of the provinces, they don't necessarily enforce contributions if you miss one in a given year. However, if you're going to set up a plan and go through all the, you know, jump through all the hoops to get one done, yeah. why would you be setting up a plan if you didn't have the intention of funding yeah. it? I mean, I unfortunately came across one that we took over and shut down that, I mean, the people were taking about $60,000 a year in income, and then the rest of it was dividends, and I'm sitting there just 
just shocked that the accountant and the, and the advisor couldn't come together and realize that this was foolish because they were not maximizing the use of this thing. But that's that's another note altogether. So you have the current service. So you have the RSP gets rolled in. Uh, you have a part of it gets rolled in. You also have this additional pension contributions and the and the past service. And then every three years, there's a review, right? And we already mentioned this. So if you've underperformed every three years, you get to make additional contributions to basically make up that performance. If you've overperformed, right? Nothing, right? Like nothing... Yeah, you, you can know. hold up uh, what we call a surplus. So if yeah. you have more money in there than you're supposed to, you can hold up to a 25% surplus without reducing your contribution. So to give you an idea, I've seen many market cycles through the life of the plans. I've been with the firm since yeah. 2003. And I remember 2007 and 2008, where right at the end of that year, because of the market being where it is, people yeah. may have been in a heavy deficit, threw a bunch of money in as a deduction to bring it up. And then when the next valuation it's came around, they're in a surplus. Massive the surplus. Yeah. yeah. So it, but then they get a holiday for making those contributions. Exactly. I mean, the goal here is about income. But, you know, that surplus thing sounds interesting. But at the same time, let's not forget that, you know, if you're this plan is targeting 7.5% per year, in order to be in a surplus position in a three-year period, you basically have to essentially do close to 9% per year for three years at least. And especially in the low interest rate environment we're in, you know, unless you're taking a lot of outlandish risks, you're probably not going to get there. That is correct. And it's it's interesting, the makeup of individuals. I mean, when I view this, I view it from the perspective of a financial planning side. And if you look at, you know, things like fixed income, where should I have my fixed income within your corp? Yeah. You're getting taxed over 50% on a pretty low return to start with. Yes. Uh, in your RSP, it's getting eaten up by inflation because it's returning sometimes less than inflation. With your IPP, it might drag down the performance and in return, you get a your deduction. Room. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. Yeah, and I know that's a common story. Some people will say, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'd rather make the contributions and keep my fixed income there and pay less tax on the capital gains elsewhere. So there's also something else that uh, comes as an option of these and something called an additional voluntary contribution. Uh, you want to speak to what that is? Yeah, I mean, additional voluntary Voluntary contribution is a clause that the majority of actuaries would have within their IPPs. The reason behind it at the time is when we mentioned this past service and this RSP transfer, mm -hmm. there's normally a specific dollar transfer that happens from your existing RSPs. If you were to transfer more than that required amount and it was an error and you wanted to be able to back out that additional amount you transferred in, you need to have a clause within the plan that allows you to do so, which is an additional voluntary contribution. And where we see it utilized in a lot of cases is you know, I have a past service where I have a $250,000 RSP transfer. I have $350,000 within my RSPs currently. I'd rather have that extra $100,000 consolidated within the same account rather than just carrying a smaller yeah. amount around. You can have one account total for all of Exactly. That. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll it into my IPP as an additional voluntary contribution. And it doesn't make up part of the benefit necessarily, but it's all consolidated there. So, yeah. so with fees and expenses, uh, you do have the ability to to deduct those as expenses to the corp and yeah. that can be a nice and that was somewhere else i was going to go so the so fees and expenses get deducted by can be deducted by the corporation which is unlike an rsp i will preface this by i will put an asterisk behind that and say that that depends in general if that can be supported because some custodians some dealerships they will not permit that sort of thing fees to be paid outside from a third party if that's the case well you know what the reality is fees drag down the overall performance anyway so you're going to make that up on the deductions in the future but nevertheless it's something that is not made up for through RSPs, another advantage there. So if we're going to sum up the kind of key benefits here, we're talking larger contribution rooms than RSPs, trying to essentially peg a income as opposed to, you know, a question mark as to what's coming out of the, um, out of the 
RSP. The ability to deduct the fees, both on the core plan and the additional voluntary contributions, and the ability to make up for poor performance or just sub 7.5% performance over time. Right? That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'd throw creditor proofing on there as well. Oh, I forgot that one. Yeah, uh, so speak to that, please. So with a, the with a pension plan, unless you know you're about to be sued and it's fraudulent conveyance, it's pretty much as airtight as you can get in terms of creditor proofing. RSPs, we hear about them being creditor proofed, but when you talk to a room full of lawyers, they tend to laugh and say it hasn't necessarily had the full test in court. So I think if you are somebody with a business where you have some level of risk and keeping your money within your corporation may attract risk of creditors, Mm -hmm. the IPP can be a nice diversification tool to get the money out of the corp and have it grow tax deferred and, and fully creditor proof. The other point I would say as an advantage is in light of the passive income rule changes that we saw last year and which we're going to have a guest speak about prior to you coming on so and, uh, so so that you you've already been enlightened with regards to that is what we're seeing is in a lot of cases you know incorporated doctors and professionals where they retained a lot of money within their corporation yeah. and now they have concerns about the income earned within that corporation clawing back some of their small, small business, business tax level and uh, <coughs> the interesting thing with the IPPs we've seen since the 2018 budget especially with medicine professional corporations corporations because they don't have the ability to sell those down the road is accountants actually saying to their clients, listen, we've done a great job in retaining within the corporation, but we have have some unintended consequences now because of the 2018 budget with regards to passive income. I think you should look at an IPP as an option so we can get some money out of the corporation so we're not retaining too much in there. So the IPP can be used very well on a, on a corporate tax planning strategy. Yeah, so that's very important. I mean, for anyone who wants to learn more about that, go back and listen to the episode about it. And the uh, just to enlighten you, unfortunately, in this country, believe it or not, there is situations where when you earn income within a corporation, it is entirely possible that the total tax bill on that income is somewhere between 70 to 120% of that income. Frightening numbers, but the IPP helps limit that by taking money out of the corporation, therefore reducing the amount of income generated within the corporation, therefore reducing the clawback of that of that benefit. So yeah, that's uh, when I tell people what those tax rates are, they their jaws just drop in shock. So before we wind up on this, there's two other on the IPP, I wanna talk about two things. One, so someone gets to retirement age or they sell their business, whatever it is, what happens to these plans? So what are the options for what, what can go? Well, you have three key options that are available to you on retirement. First off is, are you going to be keeping that company in question mm-hmm in force throughout your lifetime. So going back to medicine professional corporations, they don't sell their business. They tend to have a lot of their life insurance and other planning within their corporation that when they retire for all intents and purposes, it becomes a holding company. Mm -hmm. You're not going to sell that company over time. If you're not going to sell your company over time or collapse it, you can take the annual pension directly from the IPP. The advantage you have there is 100% of the assets are are within the plan. You can income split the pension with your spouse. Mm -hmm. And there can be the opportunity for a a very sizable top up to the plan the year that you start taking your pension. So let's talk about the top up. What is that about? It's called terminal funding. And basically what it allows you to do is depending on the age of retiring. If it's before 65, you can actually purchase an add-on pension, Hmm. which is what we call a bridge benefit, which is just 
uh, the equivalent of, of CPP paying out from the Yeah, plan. so we've seen this, you know, we see this with anyone who's got a defined benefit pension. If you're a teacher or if you're working for a company that has one, you retire before 65, they say, okay, well, we're going to pay you this amount until 65 and then lower amount thereafter because CPP kicks in, right? So same basic benefit, right? That, and we also are purchasing additional indexing. So I mentioned earlier in our conversation that these are indexed to inflation. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is a dollar today and a dollar from five years from yep. now will be different. The base pension is is indexed at CPI or consumer price index minus mm-hmm. 1%. This you can per, take that minus 1% off and purchase that that full CPI indexing so that it grows at a higher yep. level. And and that terminal funding in a lot of cases can be a six-figure number. So for some people they look at it and say this is my last year of major active income operating the business. This gives me an opportunity to put this large lump sum in and get a deduction to the corporation. If it's a case that you're going to sell the business over time before you start taking your pension or you terminate the plan, what we suggest is if you have a secondary corporation that we could add on to the plan as a sponsor, and what would be involved with that is receiving a T4 from that company to create an employment relationship. There'd be a a small uh, IPP contribution that would be attached to that T4 just to make it a participating employer. Then in retirement, you get rid of company A, which has been the main source company B takes it over and you don't need to collapse the plan over time. The other options on retirement is uh, one of them is to what we call terminate to a locked in retirement account Mm -hmm. or locked in RSP. I know there's a lot of acronyms we're throwing around here. Basically, it's the same form of an it's like an RSP. You just can't collapse the whole thing if you don't care about the tax. This is this is normal. This is what people see when they get, you know, when most people are in a pension, they get options. So they basically get one option, which is take the income and there's the different types of income levels you can take based on survivorship rules and everything else, or take a lump sum, in which case part of it goes to that locked in RSP, but part of it becomes taxable as well, right? That's correct. Yeah. So that's less attractive. I mean, the one thing we didn't talk about too, in the one case I'm, I'm contemplating right now, we got to talk about off air. Sometimes you get these business owners who want to pass the business on to their kids and want to stop working, but they're not ready to relinquish it or they may need the income. And you know, I've got one in particular that says, look, they, they don't have to pay me for it, but they got to pay me in my income income for the rest of my life, right? And, you know, they're just looking at it as getting a T4 for not working, which is not a really good position to be in, right? So the sales pitch on that or the entire solution there is to say, well, here's a better idea, especially to the to the, the youth taking it over. Would you rather be on the hook for this salary every year or would you rather be on the hook solely for, would you rather establish between now and the time of retirement, a pension fund for your father and then be on the hook solely for market differentials between that and the 7.5? So that is potentially far less cash flow intensive than having to be on the hook for that salary indexed to inflation for the rest of their lives. Definitely. And the other side to it is you can add the kids onto the plan, as we said, when they reach exactly. that that, late, that mid to late 30s number. And the advantage you have there is dad passes away in retirement. Yep. Mom starts receiving his pension as a, as a survivor pension. She passes away and there's remaining assets within the plan. If we didn't have additional members in there, that would be collapsed and, and taxable and either split. Just like an RSP yeah. would. Yeah, exactly. It's a deemed disposition at that point. Yeah. If the kids are going to continue the business and continue to earn pensionable earnings, we add them onto the plan. The assets stay within the plan. There's no tax paid. There's more money in there than they have earned credits to absorb. And as long as they just continue earning that, that surplus comes down, basically you got a paid up pension from your parents. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the few opportunities for not paying tax like that. But I would caution everybody highly that this is not the reason you enter it. That is a, these people better be, these kids better be working in that business. It better be an ongoing enterprise. Uh, There are some other risks need to be looked into, but nevertheless, it is a definitive benefit there. So 
Let's talk about the cost of administering these. I mean, there's what the advisor is going to charge or whatever the whatever the, the investments are going to cost. What's the cost to set one of these up and, and maintain them going forward? Depending on the province, because uh, different provinces have different uh, yeah. levels of administration, you're looking somewhere $1,400 to $1,600 per year mm-hmm. for a single member plan, $400 to $600 per year for an additional member. That's all deductible to the corporation as an expense yeah, as well. Which I'm always staggered by how affordable this is, quite honestly, given, given the massive difference in contribution versus an RSP over its lifetime. I mean, your projections alone, I think, typically end up showing what's a typical upside in terms of amount contributed versus an RSP uh, to a fully funded plan. Fully funded plan, you're probably looking about 40% more contributed over the life of it. It gets to yeah. about as high as a 64% advantage at age 65, That's, which is yeah. where, <laughs> where it maxes out. It's almost, yeah, so there you go, people listening. I mean, like that is the equivalent of having 1.6 RSPs if you basically do this right and you have the income and the and the cash flow justified. So that's uh, of immense benefit. So let's move on to the second topic of the day, which is retirement compensation agreements. These often get looked at similar times as, I, as IPPs. The acronym is RCAs. And these are, I will say, I think an IPP is a little bit easier to wrap your head around because pensions are, people have an understanding of what they look like, at least a basic one. RCAs are a little bit foreign. So explain to me what an RCA is and how it works. The starting comment I'd have on that is an RCA is probably one of the most misunderstood planning options and it's a huge <laughs> opportunity that exists. What it is, is it's a supplemental retirement plan. So if you are someone that has earnings well above where an RSP or an individual pension plan or a defined benefit pension pension plan Mm -hmm. would allow for, and the company wants to provide you with a benefit full, like fully up to what your real earning lifetime earnings are, uh, you would, you would put an RCA on top of that. And basically an RCA does not have a limitation in terms of funding based on $152,000 of T4. The Mm -hmm. higher your T4 on your three-year average of earnings, the higher the amount you can put into the plan. Where we see them used a lot is in is is with executives, mm-hmm. uh, because unlike an individual pension plan, where if you're not the owner of the business, there can be some long-term liabilities. With the retirement compensation arrangement, you have the ability, even if the room is higher than what you need, you don't need to ever fully fund that room, mm-hmm. and you can have a side employment contract that sets forth the limitations as to what the promise is. So it can be great if you want to maintain an executive for a long period of time. They do great work. You want to give them something more than what an RSP is going to allow for. Mm -hmm. And you can throw vesting provisions and things like that. You have to be with us for five years to fully Mm -hmm. vest these dollars. Which normally you can only throw vesting provisions on for like two years on like a group plan. Exactly. Uh, So we see it for that. We see it a lot of these days. Part of the reason we see RCA is coming back is the fact that our tax rates have crept well above 50% in many provinces. In yeah, so Canada. let's, let's, you know, just the mechanics of this. So the way this works, as you said, you guys come up with a number that they can contribute and a, a projection of forward schedule of numbers. And these things get substantial. I mean, I've had multiple million dollar contribution rooms open up for some of these. And again, it's nice because it's flexible. Use it, don't use it, up to you, but there's a cap. So what happens when someone puts money into one of these things? What's the mechanics of how it works? So it's, it's interesting. It doesn't impact your RSP room and it's very flexible. So if I say I want to put a $100,000 contribution within my RCA, what makes us a little different from other retirement plans is 50000 of that contribution would go into an investment account. So we'll just call it the RCA investment account. And then 50% goes to the government to what we call a refundable tax account, which is a zero interest bearing account. And it sits there in escrow until you retire. So essentially your pre 
paying taxes on this money. In a sense. To a degree. Right? But the idea here is, is that we're taking something that would be taxed at a very high rate. And when we retire, we have the ability to draw money yeah. out as we see fit at a lower rate. So let's go over that. So essentially, this is where people sometimes get confused about this. Like, why well, am I giving the government 50%? Yeah, but if you took the income, you'd be giving them in Ontario 53 actually in more than half the provinces now over 50%, right? So automatically there's, there's a tiny benefit in Ontario specifically of, you know, 3.53%. And some provinces that number is getting bigger. So it's basically either a push or a benefit or close to a push or benefit. Then that's not the real reason we do it. Now we're doing that at 53. If a client retires and their tax rates drop to say 30, 35, what happens when money comes out of these plans? There's no age where you need to draw on it. There's no specific dollar amount you need to draw down mm -hmm. on it. So you would look at it and where it works very well is let's say I'm going to retire at 60 yeah. and I don't need to touch my RSPs and registered assets till 71. I can push the income from there and I'm not going to have other sources of income. And I was at the top rate or pretty close to it throughout the majority of my earning years. If the money contributed to the, the, the RCA is there at retirement and you can push other income, you know, if you draw 125,000 of T4 or not T4 able income, I guess $125,000 of income directly from the RCA in retirement and you have no other income, you're looking at roughly an average tax rate in, in, the 28% range yep. in Ontario. So if I took something from 53%, and I've now reduced my end tax rate to 28. Well, that's a 25% gain. So even though half yeah. my money's not growing, you have to look at it and say, the major advantage that we have here is that spread in those tax rates. And, and that's where we're seeing a lot of it right now with regards to executive severance. So somebody is yeah. presented with a severance offering from their employer, and they're saying, we're going to pay you this as a lump sum. They're negotiating the severance through their lawyers yep. and they say, well, you know, this is acrimonious usually when you're being let go, but you know what, we'll play ball a little more, but yep. can we rewrite the agreement uh, that we'll agree to that instead classifies this as a retirement payment? It's not taxable. It's deductible to the company. They have no obligation beyond that agreed upon payment. Yep. And then you can save a significant amount of tax down the road. So, yeah. And for the record, I wrote an article on this, which we'll put in the show notes. Uh, Frazier, I hope you're using that as a sales piece. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's substantial. I mean, I think in that in that case, it was a $500,000 severance and it dropped the tax bill uh, from about two over 250000 down to about one twenty. Oh, because that was just spreading it out over five years. So, I mean, these are, especially when people are retiring early, quote unquote, so let's call that 55, 60, whatever it might be. If you have other pension assets, everything else, you know, those can be potentially deferred, in which case if you have, you know, there's nothing greater for planning when you have a lot of money than a zero tax uh, tax return, right? Then we can just dump that money onto you. So essentially it's a way of, yeah, you're basically losing half the return because half the money goes to the government and pays you nothing. Your uh, The other half gets invested. And then when the money comes out, you pay the rate at the day, which knock on wood is hopefully, if the planning's done right, is substantially lower. And we're talking significant savings here. So we talked about a couple of things. There's a lot of flexibility in this, and especially with the passive race, the passive income issues in corporations. This is great for that, right? Because if they have a year where their passive income you know, is well above the $50,000 threshold, they can opt to take that amount, the entire amount, or just the amount over 50 grand and basically push it to the RCA and eliminate their problem, right? Exactly. And we, we see that as well with business owners where in advance of a share sale, they may have a lot of passive income on the books, which is going to impede their access to something called the lifetime cap yes, gains right. exemption, yeah. which is just an ability you you in the $800,000 range it's another episode, of income, worry. you can yeah. have tax-free basically. So if you have a business owner where they have a passive income issue within their corporation and they need to clean that up, an RCA can be a great way to one-time fund 
get those passive assets off the books, bring the company on side that when it does come time to sell the shares of that company, you now have that mm-hmm. access to that cap gains exemption. And then the idea there is I've sold the company. I wait a year or two till any of the tax ramifications of mm-hmm. that are all s- settled. And then I've got this money within my RCA that I can draw whatever amounts I, I choose. If my spouse has been employed by the company and mm-hmm. received T4 and we're both on the plan, we can draw down money as well. So let's go over a couple key points and differentiation points. So again, we talked about the flexibility. You get the room, you don't have to use it. No issue there. What are the obligations about withdrawal of this plan? Well, that's the interesting Sorry. thing. You can defer withdrawal through your lifetime. There's no age 71 or age 72 yeah. rule as, as you have with other retirement plans where you need to draw it down. But in it, fairness, you wouldn't necessarily want to do that forever because, I mean, you pass away at a ripe old age of 90-something, then that hits your final tax return, and then you're paying 53 anyway. And that's the interesting thing about RCAs is unlike unlike pension plans and RSPs, where there's very defined terms in what happens upon death, and, and there's something usually called a deemed disposition where you yeah. collapse it if there's no surviving spouse, or you can do a rollover. With an RCA, you can have named beneficiaries mm-hmm. in equal shares where they have the ability to either draw the money out, they can collapse the whole thing and draw it and they'd be taxed on it, or they can take equal amounts out over time. Yeah, so they can spread that bill out as well. So who gets taxed on that? Is it them or the it's estate? the individual, not, individual the estate. not the estate. So where I've seen that in an interesting situation, uh, I had a case not long ago where we had mom and dad are in their, in their late 60s. They have three kids. Two of them are involved in the business. The third one has very hmm. low income. And the idea there was they have real estate corporations that the other active kids are involved in. Within their RCA, what they're going to do is they're going to make the third child that has the lower income that is not involved in things as the beneficiary in the plan. Mom and dad aren't going to draw down the money in their lifetime. So basically that child will be able to draw the money out and they have a fairly low tax rate because they have virtually no other income. And within the estate or will, they're going to equalize the other assets to the other kids so nobody ends up getting shortchanged. Yeah, and they can equally work to equalize while they're going on because they can contribute based on, you know, they have the room that they can contribute to and they could fund it to the degree that they think, okay, well, the other assets are worth X amount of dollars. This one's worth $200,000 less. Here's a $200,000 contribution. And at some point you hit the cap, right? But it is, it's an interesting, I haven't seen that used. That's, that's an interesting tool. So basically no obligation to cash this thing out, ability to transfer some of the obligation to the next generation, income splitting with the spouse. Yeah, you don't have the same level of income splitting yeah. as you have with a pension. They have to be employed by the company yeah. and the portion that they take out has to be proportional to their earnings. So yeah. what I mean by that is you have a business owner making- It's not 50-50. Yeah. yeah. You have a business owner making a quarter of a million, the wife's making 50,000, or the husband's making 50,000. And uh, you couldn't say, well, we got a million in the plan. Let's go 50-50 on the draws. It's interesting. I almost look at, I look at RCAs as almost a Swiss army knife of planning strategies, right? Like the CRA is not too bothered by them because they're not the easiest thing to get around. It doesn't service the biggest population. They get 50% off the bat paying zero interest and they know they're going to get their tax money because they already have the money. (laughs) So there's zero possibility of you not paying. But you look at this and the number of use cases for this type of structure is, is fascinating, right? From everything from the business owner who's trying to save for the retirement to the ones who are trying to stay below that $50,000 passive income level, the severance cases we talked about, the rewarding of executives. We'll see things called supplemental employment retirement plans set up that are either unfunded or funded. If they're funded, it's basically we'll set up an RCA because that's the only thing that makes sense. And then, you know, cases you have now for intergenerational wealth and taking care of kids with lower incomes, they really are, again, misunderstood 
not fully understood the degree of the use cases. And like I said, kind of the Swiss army knife of different high-end planning strategies. Yeah, I think you had really two obstacles with them in recent years. One was this idea that half the money's not growing, which means I've lost the opportunity. Now that we have a top tax rate over 50%, in fact, you get more dollars invested yeah. in at 50% than you do if you're paying the high rate. And if you t- keep too much money in your corp, now you're getting punished as well, right? Like it's, it's you know, everything, you know, they're designing that to push the money down. So they they want you to push the money, oh, sorry, up in the accounting process. They want you to, you know, you get to be on a certain threshold. If you don't start taking the money out of the corporation, it's pretty punitive to the corp. So people are going to be taking more personal income. And, you know, this is an alternative to that. So, and, you know, you're taking 53 at the top rate. Yeah, we, we pay a lot of tax in this country. <laughs> Let's save that for political conversations later. So, yeah, so those are uh, the two. So talk about, talk to me about the the setup and maintenance of an RCA and the cost. Sure. The setup of the RCA is a a lot less hurdles to jump than, let's say, a pension plan. We have just the Revenue Canada that we're we're filing with. Uh, We have a set of, we have a fact finder that we run an illustration from. From there, the client uh, completes a, a short application. It's three pages long. We drop the legal documents. At the point that they sign those documents, if they want to make a contribution immediately, they can attach a check for the 50% to the government account right with the application forms and send it right in, open the account on their other side and fund it. In terms of RCAs, we're looking at $6,000 to set one up if we're just doing a one-off. If we have additional employees or or business owners or whomever it is that's that's being t would by the company we want to set them up for, we reduce the cost of the subsequent ones down to $3,000 per plan. And the tax there's a tax filing that needs to be done on the plan every year. It's a cost of $800 a year per plan. So it's really yeah. not that expensive. No. And again, all the paperwork you guys handled at all. It's basically a couple of forms we see per year. And when I say forms from the advisor standpoint, it's literally I get a form saying, you know, confirm the contributions, confirm any withdrawals, confirm the assets you're holding in what allocation. And I send that off. And then some other stuff comes back for the client to sign. So it's really, you guys have done a wonderful job of making that easy. I'm not making it sound like you're the only ones doing that. There's several other actual firms I get along with too. Uh, you're just my go-to. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so... So overall, neither one of these strategies will break the bank, but they can have a massive impact on clients. Like we said, up to you know up to sixty plus percent difference over an RSP for the IPP and the RCA's flexibility and the ability to do all kinds of things we we couldn't do otherwise. And it's just it's interesting. I feel like it's it's kind of I said the Swiss Army knife, but also particularly interesting because it works really well for people retiring early and then, or it works really, really well for people who are never going to touch the money. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh... it's a weird dichotomy, right? Like if you have, if you're taking, if you have a lot of income in retirement, it doesn't work well for you unless you're planning to leave money to the next generation. Exactly. Yeah. So Frazier, thank you for taking the time today and explaining all this. Where can people find you? My pleasure. Uh, you can uh, look us up at uh, www.gblinc.ca. My name is Fraser Lang. I'm in our Toronto office. I can also be emailed at Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R dot L-A-N-G at gblinc.ca. And I'd be more than happy to help. Thank you very much, Fraser. So that was my interview with Fraser Lang of GBL Inc. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're a possible candidate for one of these solutions, please reach out to myself or whatever qualified advisor you're currently dealing with. Until next time, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is your podcast. I really do appreciate it, and it does help people discover the show. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca.
You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.